Welcome back for another episode of the KX Emerging Research Podcast. We're focusing on research that's happening right now. It's science so fresh, you haven't even heard about it yet. I'm Stacey Cochran. And I'm Kim Winslow with the Knowledge Exchange. We're continuing our discussion with specialty crop entomologist Ashley Leach from the Department of Entomology in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. Welcome back, Ashley. Hello. Excited to be back. Ashley, you had mentioned in our earlier conversation that as a society, we've developed a pollinator-dependent system for our crops. So we're talking about cucumbers, watermelons, pumpkins. Everyone loves a seedless watermelon, which means we need pollinators like bees to make sure that those plants can grow and fruit. So how do we protect the good bugs like pollinators while eliminating the bad ones like aphids, squash borers, and stink bugs? That's a hard question. I'm not even going to lie to you. (laughs) We start with the challenging questions. (laughs) Seriously. No, but it's good. It's It's a really good question. And I'll be honest, that's where a lot of research, not just mine, but there are people across the country examining the answers or trying to get the answers to that exact question. Um, And that is really anything that is considered integrated pest and pollinator management. So we know about IPM, we know about integrated pest management. That's been a concept that's been around for what, 80 years now, 70 years. It's a tried and true kind of way that we uh, manage our pests. But increasingly, especially with these uh, different insect declines that we're noting across the world, there's kind of this consideration for these insects generally, but I'm going to say beneficial insects in this situation where we're talking about pollinators. So that's now why we're getting this extra P of IPPM, so Integrated Pest and Pollinator Management. First thing we want to do is prioritize non-chemical management practices. So those are things that aren't going to directly kill or have any type of sublethal or lethal impact on the pollinator community. That's the first thing we want to get into the system. Is that always the best (laughs) thing for our commercial growers or growers, period? Unfortunately not. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of my work comes in is how do we use chemicals or agrochemicals wisely? Mm -hmm. And so I've got a whole suite of tactics that we like to look at. So that's using thresholds. So spray by number. We only want to make an insecticide application when we need to. So that means we we need a density. We need some bugs there. And they can't just be one or two bugs. We need to have a specific amount because we want to make sure that that application is warranted. So that's the idea behind a threshold-based insecticide program. So if you do have to spray Let's go on with a product that has reduced bee toxicity values. And there's a lot of really great resources uh, that you can Google, you know, whatever chemical that you want to spray, you can Google it and you can figure out what the lethality is on that um, given product or that active ingredient. So that's the second thing I would say. Last thing is try to minimize any overlap between the foraging window and the application. So don't spray when your bees are out. Okay. Which would be when? Yeah, that's so, when we're talking, and I make this joke a lot because cucurbits, um, it's one of the best systems to actually examine these relationships between pollinators and pests because that crop doesn't quit. It just keeps flowering for, you know, like it's July. Yeah, I know. It's not going to stop until you're harvesting. And so when you start telling growers, oh, well, you can't spray those things. And they're like, Okay, so I have two months where I can can use these things. Like, what do you want me to do? 
So essentially that's, uh, you know, from July onward, then we have this pollinator window. And if we're talking about cucurbits, our actual foraging window, I kid you not, it's from five in the morning, pretty much whenever that flower starts opening up to 3 p.m. Wow. in the afternoon. Okay. Interesting. So, so nighttime spring is yep. something that is an advantage here. Yep. Dusk, basically. But I always like, so I always tell them though, like if you can forego that application, that's always going to help you because with cucurbita crops, that's the genus, that's a genus within cucur- cucurbitaceae. Um, so that's things like your summer squash, your pumpkins, things like that. There's a bee called the squash bee that provisions its young with only cucurbita pollen and hmm. it will sleep in those flowers. Oh, wow. I, I've seen pictures. It's so cute. It's adorable. And I love how I'm, I'm even anthropomorphizing right. it. I'm saying sleep. <laughs> no, like, right, are, are exactly. they sleeping or are they just they like, I'm living my life, Ashley, and you're labeling <laughs> no. what I'm, yeah. But yeah, they, they hang out in the flowers, I should say, all day long. Wow. So you put your spray on at five o'clock and you still have bees sitting right. out there in the flowers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That's such good information to have. And I know one of the people that you're working on this with is Reed Johnson to better understand that he's also in the department of entomology to validate some of these longstanding recommendations in integrated pest and pollinator management. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this relationship between you and Reed? Yeah. So Reed is a wonderful person and he is, um, yes fortunately decided to work with me because <laughs> um, there's always moments where I'm like, ah, oh, you know, if only. <laughs> um, but basically we're looking at some of these more specific interactions between fungicides and insecticides. So um, hopefully going to be uh, undertaking a pretty big project this year where we're looking at different combinations of commonly applied fungicides for primarily powder and mildew, things like that. Um, and then crossing that with the insecticides that we'd normally use to target things like squash bugs and striped cucumber beetles. Mm-hmm. And so let's put those compounds together and spray them on. Uh, the bees either spray them directly or we actually put that in a sugar solution to understand what the lethality is going to be to um, honeybees, squash bees, and then bumblebees, which are pretty nice. much the top three pollinators right. of cucurbita crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you looking mainly at uh, the queen? Are you looking at work, you know, larva? Is there a particular life stage that you're trying to center on? So in this case, we're going to, for honeybees, we're going to stick to worker bees. So those would be, and this is a preliminary stu- study that we're sure, sure. doing this, yeah, this summer. So really that's the first place we're going to go. I know Reed has done a lot of really great work looking at other life stages. So that might be something, at least as it pertains to honeybees in the future. Um, and then with bumblebees, we'll also be basically working with uh, worker bees as well. And then squash bees, these are going to have to be wild caught. So sure. that's okay. where, that's going to be a wild card. I'm not, I don't want to say, <laughs> like we're going to do whatever we can with how many we have, but that's basically what we're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then try to, you know, broaden out the scope in subsequent years is the hope. Awesome. You were talking about your um, spray by number, right? And we know that that's been around a really long time. So what have we learned collectively through those years that about what's working and what's not working with that formula spray by number? It's a very good question because it's, um, 
something we commonly report on across a lot of sure. crops. So I'm, I work in specialty crops. So this is a well-tested concept in specialty crop production, but it's also a well-tested concept in field crops as well. So this idea of spraying by number, hitting thresholds, all that kind of stuff. We are right now doing a meta-analysis looking at, I think it's something like 140, 100, 120 papers. So this is something like it's well over a thousand um, different trials that basically mm -hmm. were done, data points that we're looking at, where we're trying to understand what is what is the overall utility of something like a threshold-based insecticide program. And I can't give you the final results yet because we're still doing that. Because it's emerging? What, like yeah, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> now I understand what? the title. No, I'm kidding. Thanks, I'm Ashley. kidding. Thanks. Um, <laughs> um, but basically what we're seeing from this initial kind of rough analysis is something like 40% insecticide applications saved with the threshold-based insecticide program. We're seeing equivalent pest control. We're seeing in specialty crops in particular, we're actually getting slightly higher yields Ooh, in wow. our threshold-based approach. Um, we're seeing a cost savings associated with the threshold-based insecticide program. Sure. Um, and it, we're also seeing some really awesome kind of, I guess you'd say tar off target results. So this is what like I'm what? like, I'm really interested in this is okay. So, and it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying this is real smart or genius or brilliant or anything, but of course if we spray less, you know, we expect to get some benefits sure. from that beyond yeah. everything that I just mentioned. Sure. And that's things like the pollinator community, you know, that's things like natural enemies, those bugs that are eating our pest insects. Uh, that's things like disease control. So we're seeing the same kind of great things come out of the threshold-based insecticide program with increased pollination, increased natural enemy numbers, and we're getting the same level of disease suppression in the case of these insect-mediated diseases. Nice. That's fantastic. Yep. So what are you hoping then to be able to message to growers? Like if growers were listening, what are you hoping that they might learn where you are right now and, and in the future? Yeah. So I get, I get this, um, you know, I kind of think about that whenever I give a presentation to the point where, you know, I'll, I'll finish up with the presentation and the growers be like, okay, threshold girl. <laughs> and I will be honest with you. I don't, I used to kind of hate that, you know, and I used to be like, I'm not just a threshold girl. And now I'm just like, I oh, am yeah. threshold oh. girl, <laughs> you know? So, uh, that's, I'm not even going to lie to you. That is the one thing that I hope to do at the end of my career is just, reduce agrochemical input. And I don't mean that from a standpoint of, oh, I think insecticides are awful. And all. I think that insecticides and agrochemicals generally do have a place um, in agriculture. Do they sometimes have too large of a space in agriculture? I think that's true. Um, but I think we are now in this place of trying to balance these two things. And, and we're getting to this really cool place where now we're starting to add these new lenses. So we're talking about pollination. We're talking about arthropod-mediated arthropod diseases. We're talking about how the kind of social communities that are also the sociology sure. behind we're making these decisions and some of these labor costs that we need to take 
take into consideration when we're using scouting and monitoring tools. So my point here is I hope to have a really new one. I know at the end of everything, I hope to say I made growers spray less. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. That's kind of what yeah. I hope to say. But yeah. I also want there to be a lot of nuance behind that because how did we get them to spray less? What did they get out of spraying less? You know, what exactly were those positive impacts that we were able to measure? You know, and were we able to see it at scale or is this intrinsic to a different, a diff, excuse me, a given commodity? So right. it's, it's this, I think it's a really big question, if I'm being honest, is, you know, how does less insecticide impact some of sure. these things? And well, and if it, the way I'm hearing it too is that not only are you hoping that there's less spray, right? Yeah. Less chemical usage, et cetera, but in a way that is beneficial to the producer. And more sustainable, right? Absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, so I, I will be completely frank, you know, 10 years ago when I was a scout, I used to hate that word sustainability because it just bothered me because I was like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And yeah. the more and more I've been in this world, the more and more I, I've come to really love that term because we get to talk about it in this nuanced way. I get to talk about economic yes. sustainability. Mm -hmm. How does that farmer keep that farm in the family? Right. You know, yeah, exactly how does right. that happen? And how, do, and, I, and it's from an economic standpoint, but it's also from how do they get to keep using the land that they are right now? Right, a how social standpoint. Make, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do they make sure that we don't have all these resistant insects that are now, you know, we can't even spray some of these really efficacious compounds because it's been overused. And how do we make it resilient so that we can start to rewild some of these proportions, some of this land, so we can kind of get a bigger bang for our buck, not just in saving maybe money and conserving natural resources, but it's a piece of land we want to be on, you right. know, that intrinsic value and, uh, you know, that personal pride that comes from agriculture. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. There's a real big relationship with what is done and how you do it. And I think that there oftentimes don't think about that. And it's an extremely important part to uh, production. Exactly. Hey, Kim. Please yes. tell me that you're going to ask me a it question. It is time for our dream big segment. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ashley, yes. we ask all of our podcast guests to answer this question. If you had unlimited resources, which I mean funding, time, support, people, Time, Ugh, right? Anyways, right. <laughs> Unlimited time. Uh, what big question would you research? So, it's, in a lot of ways, it's not a question. It's it's like a challenging of assumptions. Ooh, so, I like that. so this is something that I work with a lot. So, I am a little obsessed with the food system as it currently exists, just because I think it's kind of weird. It, it doesn't totally <laughs> make sense. Like 200 years ago, we, we didn't have this relationship with food. You know, we have mm -hmm. such, so, you know, and people talk about all the time, the removal of humans from their food source and stuff like that. And I, I do consider myself very fortunate because I, I know how most of my food is produced, but you know, those growers who sit in the middle of all of this, they are facing so many tension yes. points, if yep, you will. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes from both the kind of 
these people, I should say, whatever it might be, it might be the government, it might be retailers, it might be whatever, saying you can't do these things. These are things that I don't want you to be doing, or these are the restrictions that we have to place because of, you know, some of them make a lot of sense, some of them make less sense. But so you have these restrictions, but then the same thing is happening from the other end where the consumer is basically saying, and there's a little bit of a circular um, aspect to this, but the consumer is also saying, well, I want my produce to be Mm -hmm. perfect. And I want it to taste like this. I want it to look like this and da, 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 da. And so one of the things that I just really want to talk about is, you know, why? And, you know, especially when we're talking about the aesthetics of food, mm-hmm. my my job is predicated in a lot of ways off of the aesthetics of food. Mm. Right. The specialty yep. crops. Absolutely. It has yes. to be pretty. You mm-hmm. can't walk it. You're not going to walk into Myers, Kroger, Walmart, whatever. And if there's an ugly melon sitting there, you, no one's, no one's going to pick it. That no, you're going to yep. pick another one. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And um, what is pretty? There's some right? cheap. What? Ex- oh my Thank gosh! You. Yes, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know where it's like the uh, kind of a body yes. image look almost at you know oh our gosh. fruits and vegetables, right? And so I, you know, you think about the agricultural um, marketing standards and you think about retailers and, and these these check marks that these growers have to face. And I don't think, well, I will say I know that most consumers don't understand how oh, food is produced. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know because I go to a lot of, you know, dinner parties <laughs> where people say some weird stuff to me. Oh, man. Sorry, repeat that one time. When is a blemish going to affect the taste versus just how it looks, yeah, right? Yeah. And understanding Absolutely. that. So that's 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 something I want nice. to dig into. That's something that, and I think that is so, it's a really big question because there's a lot of variation therein. So, you know, some of it you can't eat. Bugs will kill the crop or they'll transmit something or they lead to degradation of the tissue, whatever it ends up being. Those are right. bad things. Those are unmarked. We can't yes. eat that. But there's a whole range of things that we can eat and we're not. And it's just contributing to food waste. And if we think about the big picture of what agriculture needs to be in the next 50 years, you know, we're supposed to feed a lot of people in a very short amount of time. And that needs to happen through sustainable intensification. And some of that can be done through intensifying our production systems. But I think that happens also through a reduction in food waste, because the reality is that our food waste that doesn't even end up in the grocery store, some of it can go elsewhere. And that's great. But we also see that a good amount of it just gets chucked back in the field and turned over. Yeah, which is just so sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of different ways. And we're talking about this, the growers, Exactly. They're sitting all here. All of their you know, energy, all oh of their time. Gosh, devastating. Ugh. You know? Absolutely. So that's something I think about all the nice. time because of it, it seems subjective. No, you're you right. Know? I think I really enjoy that answer because I think all so often that removal from the process, that removal from understanding makes it so that there are pressures, as you said, placed on producers, the whole food system, as a matter of fact, that just don't make sense because they're just not educated. You know, if, if people knew more about what it went into this, they may appreciate, uh, picking up a 50 cent apple that maybe has a little bit more yellow than, than red on it. So (laughs) ugly fruit (laughs) the world. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I know. Seriously. Like I'm a big proponent of it. I love it. And I think the one thing that 
you know, if I'm feeling sassy at a dinner party, a lot of times, you know, when they start talking to me about what they expect out of their produce, because believe it or not, that comes up more than your <laughs> Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, I always kind of talk about, well, the reason you, you probably think that way is because of some really, really heavy compounds. And that always kind of surprises people. But the reality is, you know, like I said, 200 years ago, this isn't really the relationship we had with our food. And the reason why we do feel this way is because we were, I don't know, fortunate, maybe just unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, to have some really, really effective compounds to kill those bugs. And there's a lot of other negative issues that came with those insecticides. But that set a precedent that we have not really moved right. from since. We've had abundance yep. and, and, you know, pretty produce, and we've had marketing and a variety of, of um, factors telling yeah. us this is what is ideal. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And we've had Absolutely. choice. We've had the ability to select what we want as opposed to, you know, a right. limited supply. Where you ate yeah. what you grew and what you caught, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I yeah. One of my favorite things to do, and this is actually the – if you Google my name now, it comes up, unfortunately. But the beginning of an article, I kid you not, is Ashley Lee, doesn't shop for groceries like everybody oh, no. else does. Oh my which, gosh, what? Which is <laughs> a little embarrassing. But, um, but, the, but the, the author is not wrong because a lot of times I am the person that's pulling out my phone and taking <laughs> pictures of blemished food in the grocery store. And, the, you know, and it's always like when you get that big bin of melons inevitably as those melons get down to the bottom of blemishes just starts to increase because those people aren't picking it up because we all have this you know bias of it must not be good because there's there's cucumber beetle feeding on that rind or there's a little bit of you know someone has had a a tasty little snack on my lettuce up top or something like that so it is it is one of those things that just is it's a very intimate relationship we have. This is something we're putting into our bodies on a daily basis. And it, it does make sense why we have these biases, but now we're at a place where I think we need to start challenging sure. them a little bit. Well, I'm definitely gonna change how I, I go it. to the grocery store later tonight. <laughs> Stacy Cochran doesn't right. shop for groceries like That's a normal right. It'll be in the news. <laughs> News at 11. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my yeah. goodness. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. Oh. This has been entertaining and educational. Yeah, this has really been a joy. I've loved hearing, you know, not only about the Dream Big segment, which I think is very clear that I fully <laughs> enjoy this time, but I also love that you are challenging assumptions when it comes to the pest control and the pollinator control that we have as well. So it's not just about consumers and their preference, but it's also about really working throughout the food system so that we can make smart choices that support uh, a whole broad range of positive outcomes. And I think that's, that's really exciting. So yeah, I'm glad you're here, Ashley. I'm so glad. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) And thanks for joining us for another edition of KX Emerging Research. For more fresh science, visit kx.osu.edu.